Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. My name is Stereo Mike. And my name is Mono Kev. <laughs> Very good. I like that. <laughs> Worth the wait. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? I am fan dabby dozy, and I'm very much looking forward to this clash. Yeah, me too. So, welcome to Album Clash, everyone. Uh, new Clash week this week. Just continuing with our electro season. Back into the 90s, we are. We're doing uh, today The White Room by the KLF. And next week, Kev, what are you going through? I am going through Adventures Beyond the Ultra World by The Orb. And would you like to know why I chose this clash? I do know why, but I will allow you to explain for the uh, good ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so the connection between The Orb and the KLF is Jimmy Corti. Jimmy Corti was a member of The Orb, left to continue working with the KLF... And so, yeah, that's your main connection. The reason I wanted to do this as a clash is for the two I've picked so far on this electro season, it's been very much key moments as I see them, landmark moments in the history of electronic music. And I think that these two albums are exactly that. So as well as there being a direct connection between the two, they are of a time and of a movement that, to me at least, was very significant in the history of Electro. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Uh, but anyway, that is for the next couple of weeks. Before, however, we get on to going through our album of this week, it's Can't Get You Out of My Head time. Kev, you had no shite last time. Do you have any shite this time? I do. Oh dear. <laughs> Go on. So um, we have made reference to our dog previously, who, well, underwent a procedure this week. <laughs> snip snip and unfortunately it led to both me and my partner both getting the same song stuck in our head when we were coming out of the vet which was who let the dogs out oh jesus christ i thought you were going to say the first cut is the deepest or something and i was going to argue <laughs> no <laughs> oh my god oh wow the baja men yeah fucking <laughs> dreadful one of the absolute worst. Inexplicably popular. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, mine's from a similar time, actually. And, well, I just said a, a line from it as part of my intro. It's Drinking in LA by Brand Van 3000. Oh, God, I hate that song. It's fucking shit. There's no funny story behind it. It's just a shit song. And so was Rolling Rock Beer, a shit beer. Well, and, again, it was inexplicably popular, but inexplicably on MTV2 back in the yep. day, all the fucking time. Honestly, it made me want to die. It was that in Californication. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, yeah, no funny story. It's just a shit song, so can we move on? Yeah, let, let's, because you raise the spectre of the chilli peppers and... <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. What about your call out to good stuff? What would you like to give a tip of the hat to? So I would like like to give a tip of the hat to a, a song and a band that I don't think you're going to like. All right. So 
I'd like to give my tip of the hat to The Overload by Yard Act. I do like Yard Act. Oh, okay. I was surprised because they're very full. And you, yes, could, they are. you could also say they're a bit Sleaford mods as well, which I know you have a bit of an antipathy towards Sleaford mods. It's one way of putting it. <laughs> like, the, it's a really good song. It's a really good garage uh, sound mm. to it. And I think, like, he's got a really good laconic. It's a very Marky Smith. Um, yes, definitely. I think laconic is a great word, actually. It, yeah, he, he has a really Marky Smith kind of delivery, and I really enjoy this song. It's got a really hooky. It's classic sort of indie, but has a really good hooky chorus. I think it, I think it's absolutely great, and I've been enjoying the album of the same name, which came out, I think it was last week. Yeah, it did. So I haven't listened to the whole album yet, but I, I do quite like what I've heard, so uh, you think wrong. Okay. So mine um, is also quite recent, from December of 2021. It's the song Stand Up by Tierra Wack. So if you haven't heard it, it's a, well, it's a really cool bit of modern hip-hop, basically. So it's from, she released three EPs in December of last year. One called Rap? Question mark, from which Stand Up is taken. The other two were called Pop? Question mark, and R&B? Question mark. They were released in successive mm-hmm. weeks. And um, they're all, as you would expect from the titles, in slightly different styles. For me, the standout track from all three of them is Stand Up. It's really good. Cool. So as usual, we will add these to our, um, to our playlists on YouTube Music. We do have a Spotify one. We know that they are problematic for many, many reasons, but it's quite easy to um, set up a free playlist on there, so that's why we've still got it. Just we can't have any Neil Young tracks in our... <laughs> I can't get you out of my head playlist, that's all. Or, um, oh God, what's the name? Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, quite right. I, I don't have a huge problem with Joni Mitchell stuff, like, but I'm more likely to reference Neil Neil Young than I am Joni Mitchell, I'll put it that way. Yeah, but as we've said before, fair play to them for taking a stand against vaccine bellends. Well, exactly. They've got deep enough pockets to be able to do it. And yes. Spotify, start paying artists what you actually should do. Oh, thanks yeah. for hosting the podcast, by the way. <laughs> uh, shall we get on to some top trumps? Yeah, let's do it. So you won again last time. So that's two in a row. Uh, I don't know what the, the score is uh, in terms of overall, but you've won the last two. So again, it is your pick to lead us off with a stat for Adventures Beyond the Ultra World. So I'm going to open up. I don't think I'm going to do too well here, but I'm going to have a go. So I'm going to start with my chart position. Okay. Highest reached number 29 in the UK. Number three in the UK for the White Room. Balls. <laughs> Anything else for charts? No. Uh, so the White Room also got to number 39 in the US. Wow. So, yeah, a clear win there. Um Sales-wise, I have no sales figures for the White Room. I couldn't find anything. So we have a draw there because I have nothing. (laughs) Right, fine. All right, we'll do some certifications, though. And all I've got for the White Room is uh, a gold certification in Australia. None. Oh, wow. See, I'm surprised at both of those. Yeah. The two albums that are certainly lauded for their import. Influence. And influence, yeah. It is surprising. Yeah, it is. It is. But okay, so I've won that one seemingly by default, but okay, I'll take it. So that's 2-0. All right, I'm going to go awards. Okay. 
the White Room, it was nominated for four Brit Awards in 1992, and the KLF won Best British Group at said same Brit Awards. So the Orb were nominated and awarded no awards. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. <laughs> nice bit of subterfuge there. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so I'm 3 0 up after four, so I've won. Yes! Uh-uh. But we'll do the last two to see if you can claw back a bit of respect. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to. Uh, right, let's do lists. Okay, uh, so I've got two lists for the White Room. In 1993, the NME voted the White Room as the 81st greatest album of all time. Well, on the same list, the NME voted this album the 45th best album of all time. Ooh. Oh, so you're winning on that then, fine. Uh, my other one is in 2002, Slant Magazine put The White Room as the 25th best electronic album of the 20th century. Oh my fucking God, I've actually won one. So, oh, wow. fourth best electronic album of the 20th century. Fourth best? I mean, that's wow, very high. That is, that is very, very high. Okay, you have won that one, so you lead us off on the critic scores. So... All music, yep. five out of five. Ditto. Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. three and a half out of five. Four out of five. NME, nine out of ten. I don't have an NME score. I've got Q, four out of five, but I don't have an NME score. You might as well call that a drug, four out of five is essentially nine out of ten. Yeah, fine. Okay, Slant Magazine, four and a half out of five. Ooh, ditto. Sorry, four out of five. Oh, okay. So four and a half out of five for the White Room on Slant Magazine. So I've won again. But I didn't get whitewashed this time. So, you know. You didn't. 4-1. I mean, yeah, you said you weren't confident. And so it has proved you have uh, been soundly beaten. But I managed to pocket a red earlier on. So I wasn't eight balled. Indeed. Nice pool analogy. Okay, that is top trumps out of the way. Shall we go on to talk about the background to the white room? (laughs) There's well, there's there's quite the background. (laughs) Right, people. I'm going to say this. We always talk quite a bit about background and legacy. I mean, strap in, strap in, because we're in for a wild ride this week. Okay. (laughs) Oh fuck yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. So the white room. The fourth and final studio album by the KLF, released on the 3rd of March 1991 on their own KLF Communications label. It was recorded at their own Transcentral studio in South London, and it was produced by the KLF comprising Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corty. So as a duo, they have been known under several other names, the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, the Jams and the Time Lords, which will come on to shortly right I, I i simply do not have time to go through everything in their history their influences <laughs> their outlook etc okay so let me just briefly say that both of them and particularly bill drummond were possessed of some quite anarchic ideals <laughs> i mean i would certainly say that they were influenced by the sort of situationist the like a bit of duchamp uh, going yes. on very much so. Hey, that's that's a high level reference for uh, for Al- album clash. I'll I'll get back to Simpsons and uh, cock jokes uh, quite soon. Mate. Yeah, good. Uh, so, 
Uh, Bill Drummond was also, again, and we've mentioned this a couple of times, including last week on the album that I really enjoyed, they were also heavily influenced by the Illuminatus trilogy. And we're going to come on to the significance of that trilogy on this album and on the KLF uh, over the course of today's show, actually. Um, but it's obviously seems to be quite influential amongst quite a disparate group of musicians over a fairly long period, actually. It's like they're controlling everything. <laughs> read Dan Brown. Hashtag, no, to be clear, don't read Dan Brown because he's shit. No, don't read Dan Brown. It's terrible. It's awful. And the films are worse. Yes. Quick, we must get to a library. Yes, exactly, where it's dark. But yes, renowned author Dan Brown crammed another poorly conceived metaphor into a sentence that took far too long to finish. Inexplicably popular. Like syphilis. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen anyone pay money to... I'm not going to finish that sentence, actually. <laughs> anyway, back to the KLF. So... Bill Drummond, he'd uh, been a guitarist in the Liverpool punk band Big in Japan. He co-founded Zoo Records. By the 80s, he was working as an A&R executive at WEA Records. That's where he first met Jimmy Corti, who he had signed to WEA as a guitarist in the band Brilliant. So he also, whilst working for WEA, met Pete Waterman and had been sort of simultaneously impressed and disgusted by the way that Pete Waterman and Stock Aitken Waterman had basically converted a an obscure punk from the Liverpool scene, Pete Burns, into a global smash hit with You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive. Well, and Stock Aitken and Waterman, whilst I think their output was largely terrible, what you can say is that they were very influenced by sort of the Motown ethos of you find a formula and then you bang that out and... You drive it into the fucking ground. Yeah. I I mean, I was going to ask you whether the meeting between Bill Drummond and Pete Waterman, did it occur at Mr. Smith's nightclub in Warrington during a recording of The Hitman and Her with Michaela Strachan? <laughs> Nice reference. I know, I've got niche. <laughs> are, I, I don't know, is <laughs> the answer. <laughs> anyway, the, the relevance to this story of that meeting is there is a significance in what Bill Drummond took forward in the way to make and sell pop music, let's say. Well, yeah, I mean, and as I'm sure you, you're about to go on to, the hit that enabled them to do a lot of the work which led to this album took that template and ran with it and got a huge, huge single yeah. from it, which funded all this exactly. that came up. Indeed. You say about to go on to. I will go on to it, but about implies shortly. Nah, we're a long way from that yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. So by July of 86, Bill Drummond was basically feeling burned out by the music industry released a statement announcing his retirement from WA, WEA, uh, in which he said, I'll be 33 and a third years old in September, a time for revolution in my life. There is a mountain to climb the hard way, and I want to see the world from the top. So there was no accident in the age that he chose to make his retirement, 33 and a third years old. He then released a solo album, The Man, 
which ran to a near exactly 33 minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> and obviously to be played at 33 and a third revolutions per minute. So apparently that solo album was acoustic folk rock. Which, which you do not think that Bill Drummond is going to have anything to do with that shite. No, exactly. Uh, so in an interview with Radio 1 in 1990, he said, at that point, I thought, what am I doing this for? And I got out. I did an album myself. I wrote the songs in five days, recorded it in five days, and I put it out on Creation Records. And apparently Alan McGee has listed it as one of his favourite albums. So I haven't heard it. I can't comment. No, I've never heard it. Didn't even know it existed before you uh, mentioned (laughs) it. There you go. Okay. In terms of how he and Jimmy Corty started working together. So as I said, they'd met through WA Records. And uh, Bill Drummond, again, that same interview, picks up the story. New Year's Day, 1987, I was at home with my parents. I was going for a walk in the morning. It was bright blue sky. And I thought, I'm going to make a hip-hop record. Who can I make a hip-hop record with? I wasn't brave enough to go and do it myself. Because although I can play guitar and knock a few things out on the piano, I knew nothing personally about the technology. And I thought, I knew Jimmy. I knew he was like a spirit. And we share similar tastes and backgrounds in music and things. So I phoned him up that day and said, let's form a band called the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. And he knew exactly, to coin a phrase, where I was coming from. Within a week, we'd recorded our first single. So... The name, The Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, that in itself draws inspiration from the Illuminatus trilogy. The Justified Ancients of Moo are an ancient Babylonian sect who worship chaos and are engaged in a centuries-old war with the Illuminati. So, pretty clear from that what his intentions were, what their intentions were in forming The Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. Yeah, they they were going to war with the establishment, Mm -hmm. essentially. Indeed. More from the Illuminatus trilogy a bit later. Okay, the Jam's first single was All You Need Is Love. It heavily criticised the media hysteria around AIDS, which if, like us, you were around in the mid to late 80s, you can remember it was fucking hysterical. I can't really remember, like, I I know of the hysteria and everything. You must remember the getting leaflets through the door and that fucking advert with the massive stone slab and stuff. No, so, so what I was going to say is that the media hysteria itself, like, so references to the gay plague and all, all this kind of shite that was perpetrated by scummy newspapers, yeah, you fucking know who you are. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, like, I was too young to remember that, but I do remember the leaflets coming through. I do remember that tombstone advert, which was so iconic Mm -hmm. and affecting, really. Like, I think that's the first time that many people in the country kind of paid attention to it. It became a a thing in the national consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that was the theme of All You Need Is Love. The song itself, let's say liberally, sampled both the Beatles song of the same name (laughs) and Samantha Fox's number one single, Touch Me, I Want Your Body. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, However, because of its somewhat liberal use of samples, distributors refused to take it on for fear of being sued. So they re-edited it uh, with the most egregious sample was removed Uh, That was released in May 1987 and received quite high praise. It was made single of the week by the enemy. Uh, And that was, as I said, that was their first release. They then followed that up with an album called What the Fuck is Going On? 
on the release of that album, they were sued by ABBA over an unauthorised sample from Dancing Queen on the song The Queen and I. So my my understanding, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, is that they... They made a trip to Sweden to personally ask Benny and Bjorn yes. whether they could use the sample. Correct. Allow me to quote from Wikipedia. So, the album was forced to be removed from sale as a result of that legal action. And this is where Wikipedia picks up the story. Drummond and Corti travelled to Sweden in hope of meeting Abba and coming to some agreement, taking an enemy journalist and photographer with them, like you do, along with most of the remaining copies of the LP. They failed to meet Abba, and so disposed of the copies by burning most of them in a field and throwing the rest overboard on the ferry trip home. And we'll be at the bottom of the North Sea with Rebecca Vardy's mobile. <laughs> Topical. <laughs> Excellently done. Right, so what did Bill Drummond say about it? He told the Melody Maker in 1987, we knew that nobody would see us, but we just thought that if it goes to court and it looks like we've done everything we can to put our side of the story, it would look better for us. It worked in the end because they decided to drop the damages charge as long as we didn't carry on making the LP. The only damages they wanted from us was the percentage that they'd get if we were doing a cover version of one of their songs. Jimmy Corti, same interview, said we didn't want to get done. It was just going to cost us thousands and we felt that we'd done what was artistically justified. <sighs> We're nearly to the big single, don't worry. <laughs> Kev looks bored, everyone. I'm, I'm not bored. Um, there's just, I, I know there's a lot here. Kev, you fucking wait till we get to Legacy, mate. This is just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Yeah, like, fucking hell. <laughs> Right, they released another album, Who Killed the Jams, in 1988, and again, it got positive reviews. In May of 88, they released, as the Time Lords, the song Doctor in the TARDIS. And this is the single that Kev referred to a minute ago that allowed them to make the White Room, because it made them a shit ton of money. So, it sampled the Doctor Who theme tune... Blockbuster by Sweet, and another song by an actual nonce. <laughs> yeah, a real-life actual nonce. Yeah. Uh, it went to number one, and it sold over a million copies in the UK. And if you are of a similar age to, to me or Tim, and you grew up in the 80s, then you definitely heard this song. Doctor Who! Hey! Doctor Who! <laughs> exactly. A cynical cash grab, one might say, because that's exactly what it was. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, Bill Drummond explaining in an interview in 1989, we were going to make a dance record, a house record using the Doctor Who theme. Jimmy had been working on some riffs for it, and he played it for me in the car when we were driving down to the studio. I said, that's a Gary Glitter beat, and we can't have a Glitter beat on a house record. That won't work at all. By the third day of working on it, we realised we'd got a number one single. In the following year, again, it's that Radio 1 interview. He said, we justified it all by saying to ourselves, we're celebrating a very British thing here. You know, something that Timmy Mallet understands. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I didn't expect Timmy Mallet to be referenced in this class, <laughs> I mean, but there you go. Very much dates this album, doesn't it? Marcel Duchamp and Timmy Mallet in the same, <laughs> same pod. That's album clash. <laughs> So, to really ram home exactly why they had done Doctor in the TARDIS, in 1989, the Time Lords released a book called The Manual 
How to Have a Number One the Easy Way, which was a step-by-step guide to achieving a number one hit single with little money or talent. Indeed. (laughs) That's literally what it says on the back of the book, okay? It's not my phrase. (laughs) From that point, they ceased being known as The Jams and became the KLF, which stands for Copyright Liberation Front. Can't think why they came up with that name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, indeed. Well, so actually their first release as the KLF was shortly before Doctor and the TARDIS, March 1988, the limited edition single Burn the Bastards, Burn the Beat. With that name change came uh, a fairly significant change in musical direction, away from the sort of hip-hop style that Drummond had spoken about on the first two Jams records, to much more dance, house-oriented style. So again, Bill Drummond told Radio 1, we wanted to make something that was pure dance music, without any reference points, without any nod to the history of rock and roll. It was the type of music that by early 87 was really exciting me, although we weren't able to get our first KLF records out until 88. Amongst the first releases by the KLF in late 88 were the original and purely instrumental incarnations of two tracks we're going to go through when we get to the album, What Time Is Love and 3AM Eternal, both of which got them a hell of a lot of traction on the underground house scene. We're nearly there, don't worry. We're nearly at the point where we can talk about more. (laughs) So, in 89, as Kev said earlier, They made a shitload of money off Doctor and the TARDIS. Using the profits that they'd made, they embarked on a fairly ambitious project to write and direct their own film and record the accompanying soundtrack, which were both called The White Room. They spent about half a million on the film and then they abandoned it. Fucked it off. (laughs) It's never been released, although there are some bootleg copies knocking around and I think there's a version on YouTube you can watch. I haven't seen it, I don't know. I think basically they'd tried to do it It'd be like the project was difficult and they ran out of money to finish it. Exactly that. Right. So in an effort to stave off bankruptcy, as Kev said, they ran out of money. They released a single called Kylie Said to Jason that was commercially and critically panned. So it didn't really do very well. At which point they abandoned the film. They re-recorded the majority of what they'd put together for the soundtrack which then became the album we're about to go through. They released the first two in a trilogy of stadium house singles, What Time Is Love, and then with 3M Eternal. They were both mega hits, and that's just about the point at which the album was released. So, mm-hmm. deep breath. <laughs> I mean, and again, I've omitted quite a bit there. There's so, there's so much more we could have talked about. <laughs> which is genuinely one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the KLF because it's just, it's a fucking nuts story it's great yeah, it couldn't be any more quintessentially British in some ways because (laughs) of just the sheer anarchic nature of it right, okay, Kev how did you first discover The White Room by the KLF so, through this clash um, I've never listened to the album wow, never listened to the album so the main singles I'd heard and stuff, but I'd never got, I'd never kind of taken it upon myself to search out the KLF's back history. I'd just kind of appreciated what they had done without really digging too deep. So yeah, this is a new one for me. Oh, fair enough. So as you know, I fucking love the KLF. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> I loved the singles when I heard them in the 90s. They were my first real introduction to the world of dance music. I think one of my brother's mates had a copy on tape, which I listened to, because I definitely heard the album at the time, but never owned it. And then, for reasons that we will come on to when we go through Legacy, it just fucking disappeared. You couldn't get it anywhere. So I went so long without hearing the KLF, it was virtually impossible to find it. I managed to eventually track down a copy on the internet around about 2001, 2002. (laughs) Not saying anything more than that. And yeah, I uh, was happy when I found it. Great stuff. Yeah, and I think that sort of removal of their stuff for such a long time has limited the long-term, and we'll obviously, we can get onto this, but limited the long-term impact of this album in a way. So even through most of the popular streaming services, you can't get a pure version of The White Room. You get a director's cut of it. You, You don't get that. You've got to really search it down. Yeah, you have. And... In a way, that's a shame. In another way, I think, whilst I agree with you, it's also amongst the people that were around at the time, at least, and were there at the time for it, it has increased the legend around Mm -hmm. the KLF. And we'll come on to all of this, but no, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to to listen to the album itself in its original form. But we're about to talk about that. After we've talked about the artwork... I don't have a huge amount to say about the artwork. It was designed by the band themselves. It's a photo of two speakers stacked on top of each other in a T-shape, stood in a white room. Uh, It probably symbolises something, but I've got no idea what. That's about all I've got to say about the artwork. It's, you know, it's it's a fairly good image, I guess. So I was thinking of... (laughs) You know the uh, Simpsons episode that references the... Oh, God, I can't remember the name of the film now. Like, the 60s film where they're chasing the gold and they have to dig under the uh, the trees. <laughs> yeah, I, yes. I know the Simpsons episode. I can't remember the name of the film. I, I do yes. know the film. I have seen the film. There's millions like... of dollars buried underneath a giant T. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so when, I, yeah. when I first saw it, like, <laughs> I just looked at that and that's what came into mind. Again, the customary <laughs> Simpsons reference. But... Yeah. So that didn't come to my mind at all, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything else to say about it. It's hard to find any more information about it. It's a, um, I mean, it's in a white room and the album's called The White Room, so fair enough. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, you know. Okay, shall we get down to brass tacks then and start actually talking? Yeah, let's uh, let's get into this. Oh, yeah. Right, okay, so we open with What Time Is Love? Well, we don't really. We open with a little snippet from Justify the Ancient. Lovely, but, lovely snippet. Lovely little snippet from Justify the Ancient, which we'll come back to later on. Mm-hmm. But then that breaks down and we get What Time Is Love? Well, just before that, we get a bit of the MC5 former clash. Um, we do. Right now, right now, it's time to kick out the jams, motherfucker. So, there is a reason beyond the jams that Justified Ancients of Moo and it again comes back to the Illuminatus trilogy. And I'm going to read a passage from a really interesting Quietus article about the KLF from 2017, around the time that the moratorium ended. And we'll come on to that a little bit later, as I say. Okay, so it says this. 
In Illuminatus, the justified ancients of Mumu are an ancient Babylonian sect who worship chaos and are engaged in a centuries-old war with the shadowy, control-fixated Illuminati, as I said earlier. The leader of the Jams is legendary bank robber John Dillinger, known for using the Jams' motto, Everybody lie down on the floor and keep calm, whenever he undertook a heist. Thought dead... Dillinger, in fact, becomes a major music industry mogul, although the majority of the rock business is, of course, controlled by the Illuminati, who taunt Dillinger by inciting the MC5 to call their most well-known recording, Kick Out the Jams. And it is that passage, and the one that followed it in the article, which I'll return to later, that has absolutely convinced me that I need to read this book. Because that sounds fucking great. <laughs> John Dillinger is a record company executive fighting against the Illuminati who control the MC5. Brilliant. Look, if by the time we have our next clash that you're you're um, spouting off about lizards, <laughs> then we're gonna have we're gonna have an issue. Listen, it's just a work of fiction, <laughs> but it sounds like a crazy one. <laughs> I mean. I'll come to order facts and stuff in a minute, but boom. So, would you like uh, my verbatim notes? Please. Opens with a beautiful soul version of Justified and Ancient, which then segs into an excerpt of the MC5, and then goes into the sound of the Electro Apocalypse. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so I've said it's a pure adrenaline fueled nitrous boosted smack in the face. <laughs> I mean that riff, that riff is just iconic. So you know the the name of the song, mm-hmm. What Time Is Love. Uh, so apparently that's a reference to clubbers asking what time will their ecstasy kick in. Ah, okay. Well, there you go. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. God, it's massive, this, isn't it? It's fucking huge. Like <laughs> the sirens, the beat. The, it, so the original incarnation of this, the instrumental version, is called the Pure Trance version. Fucking Pure Trance is right. I mean, like, so many times on this part, we have talked about an opening, a, a statement, and given the KLF's past history and what they go on to do and everything like that. If you're talking statements, if you're talking setting your stall out, fuck me, like opening an album with that, yes, you are very much going, I've got me balls out on the table, what are you going to do? Absolutely. It is a monolith of an opening track, this. Yeah, it's fucking great. It is brilliant. It is fucking great. As I've said, I've loved this ever since I heard it age nine. I think Stadium House is a that's the name of the three singles. Fuck it. It's a fucking perfect phrase, yeah. actually, for what this is. It It's huge. So I have this on seven inch vinyl, and when I found it, I paid 50 pence for a seven inch vinyl of this. Wow. You have no idea how excited I was when I found this on vinyl. Did you do a little sex way? Yes, I did. No, Kev, I spaffed all over the fucking place. <laughs> So sorry, listeners. <laughs> you did not need to hear that. But you're going to because I'm not going to edit it out. Have <laughs> a car boot sale. <laughs> right, okay, let's do some facts. So the rap is performed by Isaac Bellow. He gets a songwriting credit on the track. 
Three different versions of this were released by the KLF. I mentioned the original Pure Trance 12-inch in 1988. That's great. This version was released with the subtitle Live at Trance Central in July 1990. That got to number five in the UK. And then in February 1992, you may recall, there was a version called America, What Time Is Love, which was, well, it sampled the guitar riff from Ace of Spades by Motorhead. It's fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah, so that's a version with um, vocals from Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is nuts. Yeah, just that got the exact well that got to number four in the UK and number fifty-seven in the US. Uh the enemy, in its typically understated way, named it as single of the millennium. <sighs> Despite it being clearly the third best version of this song. Now I like it, but the version that was released as live at Transcentral and is on the album, it, it it's much, much better. It's great. Yeah. The last thing I want to say, just to bring it down a little bit, I'm really sorry to say this, but it's been covered five times this. Oh, dear God. Including by Scooter <laughs> and the Kaiser Chiefs. What? <laughs> yeah. I, no interest in hearing either of those. Nope. I mean, the Scooter one was bad enough. Yeah. Scooter has covered and or sampled a distressing amount of stuff on this album. <laughs> of course they have. <laughs> it's great. Mm-hmm. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, Kev, make it rain. So, do you know what the uh, crowd noise is sampled from? Uh, I do, but I'll let you explain to our listeners. So, it is a sample taken from U2's Rattle and Hum mm. uh, to give the false impression of it being a live album. Indeed. There is also a vocal sample on this from Fingertips Part 2 by Little Stevie Wonder. I did know that. <laughs> so what I've said here is that this wouldn't sound out of place on Scream Delica, or at least as a B-side to one of mm-hmm. the singles of Scream Delica. It's very, very early 90s Acid House, and to me at least, yeah. there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean... You know, it's got a brilliant vocal performance from Maxine Harvey. Yes. And I do apologise if I mispronounce his name. The saxophone solo from Doi Kiem. I've no idea, so that'll do. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it, you know, it's it's really good and it gives the song something. Because initially, it didn't really grab me, but then once those disparate elements kind of come in, it gives it something, it gives a bit of gravitas. And as you say, it wouldn't feel out of place on screen with Zalika or yeah. as a B-side to something off that. No, exactly. And on that note, you can, again, hear how much influence this has on what followed. You know, an insistent B, repetitive bass line, atmospheric synths, but at the centre of it all is a strong female vocalist. You know, you listen to any Eurodance single from 1990 to 1995, that's pretty much the template. Do you know what I mean? Well, and you think of you think as well of something like Blue Lines as well mm. that's coming out around this time. And again, the value that was given to a strong female vocal with a a more club sound. Definitely. To emphasize the early nineties acid house, there are some fantastic acid tweaks from the three oh three in the mix there as well, which you know all kinds of good. 
Well, one of the um, articles that I read for it described it as squelching synths. <laughs> yep, exactly that. So, yeah, I, I like this. It's nowhere near as bombastic as the one that preceded it or the one we're about to go and talk about. Mm-hmm. So there's perhaps a conversation that we need to have about track ordering. But to me, it's a really enjoyable Acid House tune. So I'm a fan. Yes, yeah, de- yeah, decent. Okay, shall we go on to the next track, though? Oh, yeah, let's get on to that. So, 3AM Eternal. As I mentioned earlier on, the original release of this, the original Pure Trance release of this, came out in May 1989. This version was dubbed live at the SSL, stands for Solid State Logic, which was the mixing desk they were using. That was released in January 1991. It got to number one in the UK and number five in the US. Wow. Yeah. So this was their only number one as the KLF. Obviously, we talked about Doctor and the TARDIS, but this was the only number one that they achieved under the name the KLF. Can we just talk about that opening? Yeah, let's. So you've got you've got P.P. Arnold's KLF. Yep, which are brilliant. And then, bang, like smacks you right in the face. Like you've got you've got the little the little synth bit, and then just absolutely everything comes at you it's a you know a wall a wall of sounds like it's it's a cavalcade of noise that just yeah. hits you uh, you're right it's an arresting start it just again i can't think of a better phrase than stadium house you've got the crowd noise again it's just it's huge it's massive and hooky hooky as fuck oh god yeah hooky as fuck so you mentioned the opening vocals from from pp arnold as we'll talk about in a moment that's actually a sample mm-hmm Speaking of samples, the opening This Is Radio Freedom sample, do you know what that's taken from? I don't, actually. So it was the ident for the African National Congress's propaganda radio station. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yep. So the KLF performed a version of this at the 1992 Brit Awards. We'll we'll come back to that in a bit. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yes, we should. (laughs) I mean... What's interesting about this is I see a lot of similarity with The Power by Snap. Oh, God, yeah. And they were released at pretty much the same time. So I'd love to know who inspired who. Is it purely coincidental? I very much doubt it's purely coincidental. Obviously, you had the pure trance version, but none of the vocals and stuff were in that. So, yeah, I'd love to know who inspired who, because you listen to those two tracks side by side. Well, it may well be that one influenced the other, or it could be the, you know, zeitgeist, uh, zeitgeist, that kind of stadium house, that huge sound with the, the with the big reverb and everything yes. is just what people were dancing to. So, you know, that might have been it. Fair point. So the, the only thing that I'd pick up on is that more than any other the track in this album, there's a lot of use of breakbeat on this. Mm-hmm. And that obviously, as we talked about a few weeks ago with The Chemicals versus Fatboy Slim, that became very, very prevalent in the latter part of the decade. Yeah, you can see the influence. Yeah, hugely. And and also, you know, like the, the kind of, and certainly something that The Chemical Brothers definitely ran with was the fusion of kind of rap rave kind yes. of like sound and like incorporating a bit of soul in there as well you know like it's throwing which obviously is very fat boy slim with his kind of yes. huge kind of musical knowledge and backgrounds and everything so even in norman hope you well 
like you can see how the KLF influenced what what went forward in the electronica sphere. Absolutely right. The only other thing I've written on this, my last note is me likey. Yes, it's fucking great. It is fucking great. All right then, shall we go on to the Church of the KLF? I believe we should, Father. So apparently this has a sample of Mendelssohn's Wedding March, but I've listened to this. I can't hear it anywhere. It's very deep in the mix. <laughs> yeah. So so as I alluded to a minute ago, this is where the vocals that were sampled on 3AM Eternal and are used sporadically throughout other tracks were originally set down by P.P. Arnold. So obviously she sings Take Me to the Church of the KLF right at the start. Well, and... There are various chants by Maxine Harvey throughout mm. this song about love and peace. So she provides vocals throughout this album, but claims she was never paid for her contributions and was somewhat miffed when something else happened, which I'm sure Tim will make reference to when we talk about Legacy. I don't know what you're talking about, Kev. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to do I'd be money. fucking fuming if, um, <laughs> if something occurred when I was owed money. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. That's not great. What do you think? I really like it. The vocals are amazing throughout. I mean, it's not really a proper track as such. It's a bridge. Yeah, it's a bridge, but it's perfectly good. And I enjoy the vocal performance, both Maxine Harvey and P.P. Arnold. I I agree they are. I also really like the groove on this. I'm actually disappointed when this ends. I'd be happy with another couple of minutes of that groove. I really like this too. Short as it is, I I like this. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's perfectly good. All right then, shall we go on to the next one? Yeah, it's a fairly well-known song. Well, it is. So the next track is Last Train to Trans Central. Which version of this did you listen to in researching this album? So when listening to the album, I listened to... The original Arista, so the the album version. Right, okay, good. I mean, we're going to talk about the single version as well, because I want to. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, the version that appears on the album is not the version with which you'll be familiar if you heard the singles, okay? So it's a reworking of an earlier track called E-Train to Trans Central, and also a track that was intended to be on the film soundtrack, which was called Go to Sleep. The rapping as it was on 3AM Eternal is provided by Ricardo DeForce. The original Pure Trance version came out in March of 1990. The Live from Transcentral version was released in April of 1991. That reached number two in the UK, number 17 on the US Hard Dance Chart, and it got to number one in Denmark, Greece, and the Netherlands. I mean, of course, in the Netherlands. Oh, I'm totally loving the uh, hot house. All I'm going to say is, I bet Ray and Anita were listening very, very intently. <laughs> uh, so the single is another one that I own a seven inch of, and again, I paid 50 pence for it, so I've done well there again. So <laughs> I didn't make reference to the Electro Apocalypse uh, this time. Well, the, the, the album version is very, very different, isn't it? So let's talk about that first, because that's album class, that's what we do. So what are your thoughts <laughs> Of the original album track, I think the so even even the original album track is still really exciting mm-hmm. and it's urgent for a five minute song. It doesn't feel like it. Yeah, agreed. 
great. It absolutely barrels along, and I didn't notice the length of it. So we, no. ca- you know, and it's it is really good. It's not the best version of it. No, I agree. The later the later version of it is basically what I think the warm up music in the Thunderdome was. <laughs> I mean, okay, we'll come to that in a moment. But <laughs> for the album version, yes, I agree. So it's a lot more sort of ambient house techno sounding as a really good incessant groove, which actually sounds to me as if it was influenced by Trans Europe Express, by Kraftwerk. I mean, there's an obvious connection there, you know, the, the train. Transcentral, yeah. Exactly. So, And it does sound like a train rolling along the tracks. You've got a much longer rap on this than on the single version. It's Yeah, it's less frenetic and it's less bombastic than the version that was released as a single. But I think it's really good. It's still, it's still got a massive beat. Mm-hmm. Still really acid house. So I'm a fan. But, as you said, it is not the definitive version of this song. Yeah. Like, fucking hell. I love the single version of Last Train to Transcentral. You said Electro-Apocalypse for What Time Has Loved, then what the fucking hell is this? As I said, it's the warm-up music for the Thunderdome. <laughs> or it's that um, arena um, in Star Trek, so I'll have 20 quartos on the uh, newcomer. <laughs> <laughs> the Zoidberg mating dance music. <laughs> Uh, unexpected Futurama reference. <laughs> but yes, you're right. I mean, okay, let's talk about it. So huge beat, huge bass, as you've got with all the singles. There's some fantastic early 90s electric piano, which is massively Dr. Albans. Yes, you know. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. It's massive. I love it. It's great. Vital. Urgent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's all the, all those kind of words. Like, it is an exciting piece of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, exciting is right. Vital and urgent. I agree with all of those phrases. Uh, last couple of things on it. I mean, it's a real shame that this version wasn't on the album, but anyway. So, on the Transcentral Studio itself, that was also Jimmy Corti's squat. And he told the enemy in 1992, I hate the place. I've no alternative but to live there. <laughs> Uh, and lastly this has been covered twice including by the blue man group no thanks what (laughs) i'm just reading the facts kev don't shoot the message (laughs) okay i'm I'm just leaving it alone i'm leaving it alone good call uh yeah it's great both versions shall we move on yeah let's do so okay build a fire is the next one and it's very very different yeah, so the first half of the album is huge and there's so much going on. This is um, very different. So in one of the things that I read, it says it, Bill Drummond's delivers a narrative referencing Lee Marvin's Wandering Star. Yes, he does. He talks about it playing in the car. Yeah. So it's one of only two tracks on the album for which Bill Drummond provides vocals. The chord structure and the guitar part, you may have picked this up, but it is taken from... It's not a sample, it's a lifting of the Twin Peaks theme by Angelo Badalamenti. <laughs> okay, I didn't I didn't know that, but my exact note here reminds me of Angelo Badalamenti's work for Twin Peaks. There you go, yeah. Yeah. That's deliberate, apparently. 
I really like the pedal steel guitar on this, played by Graham Lee, apparently. It's really good. <laughs> you said that. Yeah. Exactly the same. Lovely steel pedal guitar work. So it's a massive pace change. There you go. There's your album Clash Bingo for you guys. What I would say is the album version of Last Train to Transcendental sort of acts as a bridge. I think it would probably actually be better if Church of the KLF was the track that came before this. Yeah, I think that would be the better way to sort of bleed into it kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But what I like about this is it very much sets the tone for, as you said, the second half of the album. So I I don't love this, but I like it. No, I, I, I like it because it's different. Because the first the first half of the album has been so big, has been mm-hmm. so massive. You can't really keep to that yeah. because... Honestly, like, your ears would fucking bleed. (laughs) Yeah. You would have a fucking aneurysm. (laughs) Yes. Like, fuck me. Like, if if someone's dropped a pill and is trying to dance along to this album and you keep up that pace from the first half, their heart is basically going to explode all over the fucking shop. You're going to die. (laughs) You are going to die from dancing to this album. Yeah. Uh, should we go on to the White Room, the title track from the album? Let's do it. Okay, so this uh, has a sample of James Brown's The Funky Drummer, mm-hmm. which we've spoken about before. It's the only other track on the album besides Build a Fire to have vocals by Bill Drummond. I think, so it's another good sax part on this. And, and that sax part, along with the rhythm, really puts me in mind of Pacific State by 808 State. Yeah, I can see exactly what you mean. I mean, um, it's not as good, but... No, but you can see how massively influential this mm-hmm. is on the kind of incipient, ambient house movement. Absolutely. It's got that really beautiful opening, and it's so atmospheric as well. Um, it's got quite a hazy clarinet going on, and it's got a, it's got a lovely vocal hook to it as well. Yes. You know, there's there's... There's a lot going on here that you can see how loads of other people listen to this and go, yeah, there's something there's something good in this template. We're going to have that. Definitely. So, to, and this is, again, something we've referenced when we've gone through albums in the past. To liken listening to this album to being at a rave, as we've just said, the first half is the up. It's the freneticism. It's the everyone's chewing their face off. Everyone's just fucking going off. Everyone loves each other. The second half, well, it is you are in the white room. You are in the chill out room. You are still having a good time listening to some great grooves. But everyone's just taking a minute. Let's just calm down. You're having a bottle of water. Exactly. And I think in that regard, the structure of this album is quite clever. Mm-hmm. And very reflective of what everyone was doing at the time. Yeah, very much so. Okay, shall we move on? I think we should. All right, No More Tears is the next track. So we can confirm that this is not a rumination on Johnson's and Johnson's formula. (laughs) It's not indeed. What do you think? I really like it. It's got that dub feel to it. It's got a really soulful duet between Black Steel and Maxine. Yes. And I was thinking of, again, the influence on Blue Lines, on protection. The I can certainly certainly hear how this had an influence going forward. Um, it's a really interesting triptych 
these three songs together that shows that they're more than just stadium house, that they can do something else. Like having a dub track, it's really clever. And again, as you talked about in the previous song, the you've brought everyone up and everyone's banging with the first half of the album. You are very much bringing people back down and chilling them out and everything like that. It, it works really well. The only thing I would say, and I bet you know exactly what I'm going to say, is that it maybe goes on a bit too long at nine minutes. I mean, it's far too long. Yeah. Even at half the length, I think it would be pushing its luck, to be honest. Because it's just the same thing repeated five or six times over, you know? So, 100%. It and, and I would... There's no maybe about it. It's far too long. Okay? And believe me, guys, song length is something that is much more of an issue, perhaps one of us at least, on the second album in this clash. You're going to be having a chat about that. <laughs> I agree with you, but there's a massive but. Okay, besides the song length, the 90s Aswad-tastic brass part grates with me, I've got to say. Yes, dub reggae, very much so. You are much more of a reggae fan than I am anyway, Neither of us is particularly a fan or in any way a fan of a lot of what British reggae acts were putting out in the 90s, let's be honest with you, as mm-hmm. well included. So part of me can't get over that. I just think this is a bit dull, to be honest with you. I, it's not dreadful by any stretch of the imagination. I don't hate it, but it's not great at all. So I will respectfully disagree with you. I, yeah, okay. I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's... It, I don't think it reaches anywhere near the peaks that we've reached on this album. True. But I am a little fonder of it than you, but it is far too long. Okay. So should we go on to the closer? I think we should. Okay, so we end with Justified Ancient. No, not that version. Uh, this is a reprise of the version that led us in to the album. It's a really, really laid-back end. Almost lullaby-like. It's beautiful. It is. I said it's such a gentle ending to the album, particularly considering the raucous place we were earlier. Mm -hmm. It's like someone's come in and is taking you home and rescuing you from the really fucking dodgy rave that you've gone to. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I think think there's a deliberate lullaby feel to it with the synth chords that are played underneath the vocals. It's soothing. It is exactly... It's comforting to listen to it. The vocals by Black Steel are brilliant in this. Yeah, they are. They are. And I think lullaby is a really nice way to describe it. I mean, it isn't the definitive version of the song. We'll come on to that in a second. But you're right. But... I really enjoyed it. I think it's a lovely, lovely way to bookend the album that you open with the incipient sort of bits of this song and then you end with such a lovely kind of lull after everything you've been through earlier on in the album and you've been through the electro apocalypse that this is the comforting warm blanket to send you to sleep. Yes, I like the lyric, they don't want to upset the apple cart, they don't want to cause any harm, because that is very much a stark contrast <laughs> to what they set themselves out to be. <laughs> so that's good. All right, okay, fine. We will go to the fireworks factory, because I'm sure a lot of people who haven't mm-hmm. listened to this album will be wondering, when are we going to get there? We will now talk about the version that everyone will have heard of, 
the Stand By The Jams version featuring the first lady of country, Tammy Wynette. I mean, that version is fucking amazing. It is. And you know me, Tim, and you know that I love going below the line on things. <laughs> yes. And reading comments. Yes. So I, I did listen to, uh, well, I watched the YouTube video for this song and I went below the line. So some one of the comments references a mobile Indian t- uh, takeaway in Sheffield, which has the line across their van saying they're justified and they're Asian and they drive an ice cream van. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I am now moving to Sheffield purely so I can get a takeaway from that van. <laughs> Oh, great. So on that, several months prior to the release of the single, the KLF appeared at the Liverpool Festival of Comedy, uh, where, from an ice cream fan, they sold ice creams to the audience, whilst at the same time on stage, various hooded figures in grey and yellow robes chanted Justified and Ancient. I mean, it was a massive hit as well. It was huge. It was massive. It was got to number two in the UK, number 11 in the US. It was a top 10 hit pretty much everywhere else in the world. It was actually their final commercial release, for reasons we'll come to explain in a bit. (laughs) Should it have been included on the album? No. Agreed. For all the reasons we've just said, because the album ends on a soothing, comforting lullaby, Mm -hmm. and the single version ain't that. If you're going to include it on the album, then it cannot be at the end. Mm Mm-hmm. So you would finish with No More Tears. Which would give me a problem, but no, you're right. It's a fucking rammer, though, that single version. Oh, it's an absolute rammer. Great. So just lastly on it, of the collaboration, Tammy Wynette said, I don't really know why they chose me. I was apprehensive at first, but I'm really excited with the way it all turned out. (laughs) This is a bit of like, Moomoo Land looks a lot more interesting than Tennessee, but I want to live there. (laughs) <laughs> I mean the the video's fucking nuts as it well. Is, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Really good. Uh but that's it. We are done. The white room is closed. So should we do some reviews? I think we'll do reviews before we get into legacy because yeah. again, strap in for that. Very much so. Okay, so Uh, The review in Q magazine from the time, Yestin George wrote, The KLF are a law unto themselves. Jimmy Corti and Bill Drummond have consistently challenged the status quo and defied categorisation over the years. Thus, it comes as some surprise that by their own standards, the White Room appears to be little more than a collection of remixed tracks from their recent past. Indeed, this would indicate that its release was little more than a cash-in on their newfound success, masquerading as a soundtrack to a film which is still one. £1 million away from completion. From the awesome vitality of What Time Is Love and 3AM Eternal, the album goes through a seamless transition of pace to the moody guitar twang incorporated on Build a Fire, ending on the gentle ragger-tinged No More Tears. Well, it doesn't end on that, but okay. A more subtle form of subterfuge before, this LP will appeal to recent converts and hardcore fans alike. Their time has come. So, bearing in mind that Q, as I mentioned earlier, gave it 4 out of 5, that's quite a muted review. Mm-hmm. I agree with some of the sentiments on it, but it's quite a muted review. Yeah, I mean, so the the reviews of the time are really fucking weird. Mm. Tim Nicholson in the Record Mirror, whilst giving it Album of the Week, 
describes the white room is to a large extent the KLF playing safe. Anyone whose introduction to the Jams Disco 2000 Time Lords KLF saga was via the stadium house reworking of What Time Is Love last year will be ever so pleased with this remarkably strong and cohesive LP. So whilst praising it, they're also saying that they're playing safe with it. Well, I can understand those sentiments. And it comes back to what we said earlier. I think a lot of people will have certainly been reading these reviews thinking, I'm going to get nine tracks of Bombast. And as you said, my heart's going to explode when I listen to this album for the first time. Well, it isn't that. It is a much more pared back and ambient album than the singles would have had people believe. And I think I don't think any of the reviews articulate that particularly well, but I think that's what the sentiments mean, if you know what I mean. So James Brown. James Brown? So James Brown, who later became the editor of Loaded, so that James Brown oh dear. in the NME, said there's a hell of a lot of reasons to admire the KLF, but I'm afraid the White Room isn't one of them. For the most, it's nothing more than background noise, and you've been paying attention to the lives and times of Drummond and Corty, you'll know how dynamic the White Room should be. So I think that speaks to exactly what you're talking about, is that there's this conception that it should be all bangers, and um, mm. you can't you can't do an album like that because it fucking knacker everyone out. Exactly. Uh, what I would say is I've never been happier to disagree with an enemy review now that I know who wrote it. <laughs> well, exactly. I'm fine disagreeing with James Brown because I mean he supports the leads anyway, so and he's a prick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, just uh, retrospectively, John Bush, for All Music, he said that The White Room was an album bursting with hit singles that nevertheless flows as well as any concept album. Often overlooked as a classic from the Acid House era, mostly because of the KLF's retirement one year later, to which you alluded earlier, The White mm-hmm. Room represents the commercial and artistic peak of late 80s Acid House. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with the last point, but I agree with everything else he's written there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all right. Nobby time. It is Nobbus time. He was a fan, to be fair. Surprisingly. Yeah, well, very surprisingly, considering some of his earlier reviews. The Professor gave it an A-. minus. Of course he gave it an A-. minus. <laughs> can't give it an A. No, no, because that, that would give an idea that he wasn't a fucking professor. <laughs> Right, anyway, so Robert Criscal said in The Village Voice, they're justified and they're ancient and they like to roam the land. Croon's anonymous disco soul girl, P.P. Arnold. Anonymous? Fuck off. They don't want to upset the apple cart and they don't want to cause any harm. But if you don't like what they're going to do, you'd better not stop them because they're coming through. Whereupon follows a famous sample from the MC5's Kick Out The Jams and a welter of pop industrial body grooves. These voracious smarty pants Brits, aka the Time Lords, the justified ancients of Moo Moo, the Jams, are sampling less and copycatting more these days, and what whatever they mean or don't mean, deconstruct or reify or exploit, they like everything I like about house and are canny enough to can the boring parts. Hmm. Much more concise than normal. He, he talked about the album. He talked about the album. I, I don't like the dig at P.P. Arnold. I think that's unnecessary. Um, but unusually, it's a coherent exactly. piece of work. I'm a little bit unnerved by the fact that he made kind of sense. Yeah, me too. 
very reluctantly, I'm going to give him a pass this week. I mean, I'm not happy about it at all. No. And I'm going to keep this receipt, Nobby, because at some point in the future, I'm going to cash it in. But fine, okay. Yeah. Without question, relatively soon, you're probably going to be an insufferable prick. But, you know, broken clock and all that. Well, exactly, as I said the other week, quite so. (sighs) Okay. We've made pretty good time so far. (laughs) Strap in, people. Legacy. (sighs) Let me just catch my breath. (laughs) Right. By the end of 1991, the KLF were huge. They were the biggest selling singles act in the world in 1991. And they were on the verge of becoming pretty much exactly what they didn't want to be, which was bona fide pop superstars. So let's go back to that performance at the Brits in 92, shall we? Which we've mentioned a couple of times. (laughs) So I mentioned that they won Best British Group, which is good. Well done to them. But that's not what people remember about the show. No, 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 no. No. They opened the show. And they opened the show by performing a version of 3AM Eternal, as I mentioned earlier. They did. Kev, what was interesting about that version of 3AM Eternal? So they brought in... <laughs> so in the in one of the reports that I read, they were described as crusty punks. <laughs> Extreme noise terror. Yeah. Crusty jugglers. <laughs> we'll be up to our balls in crusty jugglers. Uh, yes, they performed with grindcore group Extreme Noise Terror, a thrash metal version of 3AM Eternals at the Brits. And what did Bill Drummond do? <laughs> well, so throughout the performance, he was on crutches and he was wearing a Massive fuck-off leather trench coat, which would make Lawrence Fishburne blush. <laughs> and then at the end of the performance, Bill took out a machine gun and he unleashed round after round of blanks over the audience's heads. <sighs> and then the KLF left the stage to the announcement, ladies and gentlemen, the KLF has now left the music business. But that's not the end of the story. <laughs> No, it's not. So that sounds wild, yeah? That wasn't how it was originally supposed to go down. So again, I'm going to quote another passage from that 2017 Quietus article that I mentioned earlier. At one point, Bill was going to cut his own hand off on stage. (laughs) And another, he and Jimmy were all set to drench the assembled music biz dignitaries in buckets of genuine blood fresh from the slaughterhouse. There had also been plans to throw a dead sheep into the crowd. They kept kept with that idea, though. They did. Well, so what they did in the end is they dumped both the sheep and the gallons of blood in the lobby of the Lancaster Gate Hotel, which is where the after party was being held, along with a note, I died for you, spelt E-W-E. I died for you. Bon appetit. So that was something of a surprise to the people that had gone to the Brits. You know, puts Jerry Halliwell's short Union Jack dress into perspective, doesn't it? So it was described by Select Magazine as it's the last grand gesture, the most heroic act of public self-destruction in the history of pop. So 
Drummond and Corti, they then began working with Extreme Noise Terror on a thrash metal album, which they were going to call The Black Room. But after only a week, due to basically their declining mental health, they canned it. Sir Bill Drummond told Q in 1995, it was impossible to go further, it just wasn't peeking into the abyss, it was hanging right over it. It was really, really dark. Then, in May 1992, the 14th of May to be exact, the KLF officially quit the music business, deleting their entire back catalogue in the process. Comes back to what we said earlier, from this point on, you could not buy KLF records in, in well, certainly, the, you know, HMV, Virgin Megastore, etc., at the second-hand car boot sales or flea markets, maybe, but... So, on the back catalogue stuff, because obviously they had released everything through KLF Communications, they owned all the publishing rights, they owned everything, so it was very much theirs to go, nah, fuck off. We've talked about publishing rights and stuff a lot on this show, and that shows the power that the people that own those wield. Without question, and yeah, the they may have lost out on a lot of years of royalties and stuff like that, but um, in terms of making the statement that they yeah. wanted to make about the music business, they very much did that and kept with it. Yeah, indeed they did. So of that statement, of that move, somewhat prophetically, Selector magazine at the time described it as equivalent to piling up maybe a million or more £5 notes dousing them in petrol and woof, which is an interesting way of putting it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, okay, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. <laughs> so in, then in 93, they took out a series of full-page adverts in the broadsheet press saying, abandon all art now, await further instructions. There was another one that's read, it's been brought to our attention, you did not abandon all art. Serious direct action is therefore necessary. The K Foundation will award £40,000 to the artist who's produced the worst body of work in the last 12 months. Bastard, because like in 94, my second year art project could have won me 40 grand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it was fucking dreadful. <laughs> I was batiking the shit out of stuff in 93. Where was my 40 grand? <laughs> so, on the 23rd of November 1993, the K Foundation donated £40,000 in cash to Turner Prize winner Rachel Whiteread. <laughs> So the reason they chose £40,000 is because that is exactly double the award for actually winning the Turner Prize. (laughs) She only accepted the award after the two had turned up at her hotel and in the lobby threatened to burn the £40,000. Literally, their manager was stood over the money with a lighter and a petrol can. (laughs) She was like... Please don't do that. I'll take the 40 grand. Comes back to something you were saying earlier about people having allegedly not being paid for their contributions to the album, perhaps. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it gets worse. Yeah. Okay, so for the next stunt, I would just like to read a passage from a 1995 article in Q. Next, Drummond and Corti dreamed up an exhibition called A Major Body of Cash, which would consist of seven pieces, all involving the K Foundation's money. The main exhibit was to be a piece called Nailed to the Wall, one million pounds, hammered into a frame. They considered auctioning it with a reserve price of 500,000, so that the purchaser would be left to unravel the dilemma of which was worth more, the art 
or the hard cash. They considered sending it to Nicholas Sirota at the Tate Gallery. They planned a public burning of the money in front of tabloid journalists. In the end, they decided on a very private incineration. In that article, Bill Drummond is quoted as saying it's not easy taking a million out of the bank. They believe the only reason people want a million pounds in cash is for criminal reasons. So, in August of 1994, Bill Drummond, Jimmy Corty, their manager and a friend of theirs who was a freelance journalist, took a boat to the Scottish island of Jura and very privately set fire to the sum of £1 million in £50 notes. Again, I will let Q Magazine pick up the story. In the last week of August, the Jura Constabulary discovered the remains of charred £50 notes washed up on the island's shoreline. The burnt notes were real enough, and there appeared to be hundreds of them, with wildly varying serial numbers. Fearing some ghastly, bungled, drug-linked crime, the police began an investigation. Someone at the station remembered the recent visit in a private Seneca plane of two eccentric one-time pop stars from a group called the KLF. They had carried out unfathomable rituals on the island before. On one occasion, Drummond and Corty had arrived with 50 members of the world's music press, whom they had persuaded to dress in ceremonial robes to witness the burning of a huge wicker man. The event had cost some £70,000. So, to eliminate the two from their inquiries, a constable McEwen telephoned Bill Drummond to ask if, by any chance, he knew anything about the incineration of a considerable sum of money. Should he be able to enlighten them as to the origin of those charred notes, no prosecution would ensue. They simply needed to know. Well, ho-hum Drummond, yes, it was us. Thus reassured, Constable McEwen doubtless replaced the phone as amused and bemused as the rest of us. Just why did they do it? So, here's Bill Drummond again, same article. A million. It's an even greater number than 10 million. I mean, it's not. It's literally an order of magnitude less than 10 million. <laughs> but okay. The inaccessibility of the spectacle was intentional. Everything KLF did was accessible. It was all too easy for the audience. When we burnt the money, we wanted people to find the result by chance, for the ripples to spread slowly. I mean, as commitment to your art and everything like that. Yeah. <laughs> you, I can't even think of the words like, yeah, you have you have displayed a very much a commitment to your ethos. Uh, it's anarchic. It's a statement. It's very much in keeping with their ethos, as you said. There's an entire conversation we could get into and we don't have time and I don't really have the inclination on Album Clash around whether ethically it's sound. Mm -hmm. million quid's a lot of dollar. You could have given it away and, you know... Quietly, exactly. And if they really hadn't paid contributions to the album, the money they were owed, then that's an entirely different conversation. And again, I, I, I don't know the ins and outs, so I don't propose that we get into that either. But yes, as an artistic statement, it is very much in keeping with the KLF. Okay, so I do need to start bringing this to some sort of conclusion. Right, so let's just quickly bring things up to date. In 2017, the justified agents of Moo Moo, exactly 23 years after the stunt with the cash, they hosted a three-day event in Liverpool, which they called Welcome to the Dark Ages. So that was the end of their self-imposed moratorium and the festival included a debate asking why did the K Foundation burn a million quid? The Jams also, and this is the bit I like, announced new plans for a people's pyramid 
to be built from bricks, each containing 23 grams of human ashes. New bricks to be laid at the annual Toxteth Day of the Dead. <laughs> okay. So in 2018, Jimmy Corti swore it was serious and that it was inspired by his brother's death. He said it's easy to make it sound like a joke, but it isn't. It's deadly serious and it's a long-term project. He also confirmed that Justified Ancients of Moo Moo uh, were a going concern. He said it's interesting to be in a band that doesn't make records, but only makes pyramids of dead people. I mean, that's a fucking sentence and a half. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. Okay. And I could go into loads more about that festival in Liverpool, but we just don't have the time, okay? It's fucking wild. It like, is fucking wild. Go and read, read any it. of the reports of the time. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Right. On the 1st of January last year, 2021, for the first time ever, the KLS material was made available on streaming platforms, initially with the release of Solid State Logic 1, which was a compilation of remastered 7-inch singles. That was followed in February by a re-edited version of their Chill Out album, which had been released in 1990. That was titled Come Down Dawn. That was followed then by Solid State Logic 2, which is the 12-inch signal singles remastered. And then in, on the 23rd of April, the director's cut of The White Room, to which Kev referred earlier, was released. So, I just want to finish with a quote from a review by Stephen Poole of Bill Drummond's book 45. And I think this quote sums up the KLF and their legacy perfectly. A myth like the KLF's is peculiarly omnivorous. Just as there can never be any evidence to disprove a conspiracy theory because the fabrication of such evidence is itself part of the conspiracy, so the pop myth of the KLF can never be blown apart by anything that they do, no matter how dumb or embarrassing. The myth will suck it up like a black hole. The music, the myth, the legend, the KLF. I don't think I could uh, finish our review of this album any better than that. Okay, then. Kev, what's your best song? What's your worst song? Okay. It's a tricky one because I like a lot of what's going on in this. I'm going to... So my worst song, I'm probably going to come down on No More Tears because it's too long. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's my main problem with it. Best song, it's a toughie because there's a lot going on here that I really like. Um, Justifies an Ancient, this version is great. It's not the definitive version, but it's still... I, I love the vocals mm-hmm. on it. Last Train to Transcentral is brilliant. 3AM Eternal is great. But the opening track to the album is exactly what grabbed me when I first heard any KLF stuff. And it is fucking amazing. So what time is love? So I'm going to be really quick because my choices are exactly the same and for the same reasons. Yeah, No More Tears is too long. And What Time is Love is a Stone Cold Rammer. What I would say is if the single version of Last Train to Transcentral was on the album, that would be my favourite track. Mm-hmm. But it's not. And What Time Is Love is fucking phenomenal. So, yeah, there you go. We are in accord on that. And that is pretty much it for this week. Yeah. So just remind people, Kev, what you're going to be taking us through in seven days' time. I will be taking us through the Orb's Adventures Beyond the Ultra World. Great stuff. And finally, please tell people how they can keep in touch with the show. 
So, if you were so inclined, you could go on Twitter and you could, you know, follow a, a bunch of celebrities who were hawking uh, what they were claiming to be a, a unique piece of art that you could also become involved in, <laughs> not a cartoon picture of a chimp, which is not fucking art. It's a cartoon of a chimp. It is a fucking Ponzi scheme. <laughs> the reason that they are trying to get you involved is because their thing only has value if other people purchase it and think that thing has exactly. value. It is a picture of a chimp. It is not Van Gogh's sunflowers. <laughs> you are not buying that. You are buying a cartoon picture of a chimp. No, Kev, you're not buying a cartoon picture of a chimp. You're buying a receipt for a particular digital version of a cartoon picture of a chimp. Look, this one's got a fag out its mouth. <laughs> it's still a cartoon picture of a chimp. No, it's not. It's a receipt for an instance of a cartoon picture of a chimp. It's not even <laughs> So it's shit art that you don't even own. So whilst you're on Twitter, you can't see shite like that and celebrities <laughs> hawking this crap, looking at you, Jimmy Fallon, amongst <laughs> others. John Terry. Yeah. John Terry's, all I'm going to say is, it's very much on brand. So whilst you're on Twitter, checking out all this not art, not art, you may also check out our Twitter page, at Clash Album. If you like Norman Cook-approved, carefully curated content... Carefully curated actual art. Yes. Um, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album... Or if you want to send JPEGs of um, various chimps to us to <laughs> peruse, then you can go to our email at albumclash at gmail.com. Oh, I've started getting spam Woo! to the Gmail address. <laughs> so whoever it was, thank you. It's nothing like sexual, which is disappointing. <laughs> but the spam, people keep telling me my Norton antivirus subscription has, has expired, even though Norton doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, <laughs> thanks to anyone who did that. Well, I, I was disappointed because I thought they were going to tell you that you could um, enhance your girth. I don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what the uh, graffiti in that toilet said. <laughs> Enough of this smut. People are bored. <laughs> and I don't blame them. Um, as I always say, guys. Get in touch with us. A lot of you are engaging with us on Insta, certainly, so that's great. Hope you're enjoying the show. Leave your reviews on whichever platform you use to listen to us. Leave a rating, preferably five stars. Like, subscribe, all of that stuff. We will see you next week where Kev is going to take us through, as he said, adventures beyond the ultra world. But until then, I have, as usual, been Timothy. And I'm the artist from the known as Kev. And we'll see you next week. Take care, guys. Ta-da. Cheers. Bye.